Hello, this is Dr. Harriet Fraud, bringing you the podcast, Capitalism Hits Home, about the interconnections and mutual shapings of personal life, political life, and economic life in America. It's brought to you by democracyatwork.info. We want you to sign up. Be on our email list so you can hear from us, so you can send and receive messages from us about new merchandise, about new programs, about everything and anything around democracyatwork.info. Please do that. Today, I want to talk about the fall of the American empire. All empires rise and fall. None are eternal, and that's something of which our government seems to be in denial. Now, what do I mean? What are the signs of America's fall? We're not going to hear that from the media because the official response has been the response typical of people with great personal problems. One is denial, where you deny the obvious and destructive. You deny that it's even happening. Another is dissociation. You just go somewhere else and pretend it isn't happening. And the third is projection. You project the problems that you see onto an external enemy instead of looking at how you participate in the problems you face. Those are personal ways of dysfunctional adjustment. Politically, the United States as a government denies that the empire is falling acts like we are still masters of the world when our mastery is being eroded. Dissociation is where we focus on something else. We focus on who or what to the Oscars or other celebrity gossip. We focus on pretending we're winning. And the last one is projection, where you take your own problem and you project it on someone else, like Biden now, who is talking about Russia as the evil other. Putin is the embodiment of evil, and we Americans are the embodiment of good saviors. We condemn evil invasions. We kind of forget that we invaded Vietnam, we invaded Afghanistan, we invaded Iraq just in recent history. And um, that is quite the denial as well as the projection onto someone else of the problem. And I'm not saying here that I think Putin's a great guy, but we deny that he did say trying to get Ukraine into NATO is a red line, which we will not accept. Because since World War II, we have ringed what used to be the Soviet Union and is now Russia, with hostile NATO bases. And they said, go into Ukraine, which has 1,200 miles of shared border with us, and you will be declaring war. So they were instrumental in starting that war. And they don't mention that. They just project the blame on the evil Putin. They also forget that in 1963... JFK, Kennedy, 
risk World War III because Khrushchev was starting a missile base in Cuba, 90 miles from home, and we wouldn't tolerate it. So, you know, we do have to look at both sides here, and they don't. They just project their own blameworthy history onto Russia and their own evil deeds onto Putin. So that's obviously a dysfunctional adjustment. How can we have a functional adjustment? Well, just as in psychology, if you want to be able to deal with a problem, first you need to face that there's a problem rather than denying, dissociating, or projecting it onto someone else. So the first thing we have to do here is look at, okay, what do we mean the empire is falling? What are the indications that it's falling? Well, let's look a little bit and try to figure that out. At the end of World War II, America was the victor. America and Russia, the Soviet Union, won World War II. The Soviet Union lost 30 million people. There were 30 million Soviet citizens killed. We lost 600,000, and together we won the war. We certainly depended on the Soviet Union to help. I mean, not only did they lose a lot of citizens, but they participated fully as our allies. During the war, Joseph Stalin was referred to as Uncle Joe, which is certainly not the way anybody would refer to him now, but we were allies. And so, but America, but the Soviet Union was decimated. It was bombed and destroyed. People fought the Nazis hand to hand in the streets. Buildings were destroyed. People were destroyed. A whole generation of men was killed. So America was the only nation that was a developed nation that was left standing because we didn't have the war on our soil. So the American empire was built because in part we were the only nation that was developed, that was standing after World War II. And we had dominance everywhere. We were the victors. We were the untouched. We were the only producers that were in shape to produce and to loan money. Also, our president was FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was the most popular president in American history. He was elected four times. He died shortly after his fourth election, but he was elected four times. His social programs were enormously powerful and enormously positively greeted by all but the very rich. They were programs like a minimum wage, social security, mass employment. Eleven, between 11 and 15 million people were hired at decent wages in the United States to do, to restore the country, the civilian conservation corps, did conservation work, built bridges, restored and built dams, the worker, Work Progress Administration created artworks, theater, murals, paintings all over the United States. 
hiring artists who were unemployed. At that time also, in addition to the 11 to 15 million that were hired in the New Deal, powerful unions were developing. The CIO was growing and as a union that later joined with the AFL, but originally was independent with huge unions on industry-wide negotiations. And at the time, the Communist Party and two socialist parties were very active in the United States because the country was getting polarized. Now, FDR passed these incredibly positive social programs like unemployment insurance, social security, and public employment, and also a minimum wage, which hadn't been done before. Well, it was the middle of a depression. How did he get the money? Well, he got the money from the rich. And why did the rich give money? Well, they didn't do it willingly. But the United States had an enormous communist and socialist movement. So FDR could go to them and say, you either give me the money, and the top incomes were taxed at 94%, which means that the very rich got only six cents out of the top money they earned, whereas the poor and everyone else in America got a break and got programs funded by that money. And they were only willing to do it because they were socially threatened. And FDR basically said, I'm saving capitalism, so you better invest in this. It's hard for us to imagine now, now that we see, at least I see in New York, beggars on the street all the time. It's hard to imagine that instead of begging, tens of thousands were marching in the streets of New York demanding jobs and protection. That was a movement, a communist, socialist, left, and union movement. So, you know, if you think about it, the rich were willing to give only because they feared a revolution. Now, of course, being rich people, they hired tax lawyers who figured out some cheats for them. But nonetheless, the law was 94% on incomes over what was then $25,000 a year, which is now about worth about $400,000 a year. They didn't get to keep that money. Instead, FDR levied these popular programs and paid for them with that money. And I should just tell you as an aside, one of the things that is not on the agenda, conspicuously absent now, as the debate and the debacle occurs in our Congress and Senate about raising money for the budget by extending the debt limit, taxing the rich isn't even a consideration. Undoing the tax cuts that Trump gave them, over $1.7 trillion worth, isn't discussed. Taking that back isn't discussed because there isn't a movement to force the discussion as there was then. 
It's important for us to remember because our history is presented as if it's great men make history rather than political movements make history. FDR was elected with his primary slogan being a balanced budget. He was pushed by the emergence of a powerful left into what was the New Deal. Now, since FDR died, the rich have been trying to undo the New Deal. They've been working hard on that so that they could keep their money. And as an example of how well it's going for them, after the Great Depression, when they passed the Glass-Steagall banking laws to stop banks from risky lending so that they wouldn't get their money back and be able to pay their depositors. It took over 30 years for them to weaken that. After 2008, when the banks were again making risky loans and endangering our whole economy, the Dodd-Frank bill was passed. It's only taken them about eight years to gut that. Dodd-Frank was passed in 2010. By 2018, it was eroded by lobbyists from, in part, Silicon Valley Bank, the bank that just folded and which our tax money is being used to bail out. Because even though Biden said, we are not bailing out the banks, we are just refunding depositors. Well, the depositors in the Silicon Valley Bank were mainly startups and very wealthy individuals who were starting startups and risky ventures. They didn't even keep to the amount that the Federal Deposit Insurance Company guarantees. So that if the bank folds, the government still gives you your money, 250000 Their deposits were up to 694, no, 684000 However, we're paying them back because Biden's paying back all the depositors, even depositors with over 250000 Instead of saying, look, we guaranteed for FDIC 250000 We will generously extend that to people who didn't restrict it to 250000 But that's all we're insuring. No, they insured the whole thing. So now, and they suspended those rules so now banks can take in huge risky deposits and know that if they fail, our tax money will bail them out. It only took eight years, whereas before it took more than 30 to undo those regulations. But let's go back to how they got away with doing that. Well, the way they stopped that, the way the people who opposed the New Deal Stop that was anti-communism. At the end of World War II, in the late 1940s, communism and socialism were household words and were very common. Every family, I read an article that had a stat, that one in every four families had an active communist who talked about his, her, or their activities at family gatherings. That was an accepted reality, that socialists, communists were part of the conversation. That had to be stopped. 
in order to stop the left, which was responsible for the social benefits people got by pushing for the, for regular people, they had to throw out the left, which they did with anti-communism. Joseph McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee deported, jailed, and had fired millions of American communists and socialists. Some of the fallout of persecuting Judy Garland was that she committed suicide under their pressure. Other people were just deported or jailed. And they were jailed because being a member of the Communist Party or of the left somehow intimated a violent overthrow of our country. You contrast that with January 6th, where they were violently trying to overturn an election, and they get maybe six months or a year. Hmm. Very interesting. And unfortunately, the head of the AFL-CIO at the time agreed to throw the left, the socialists, and the communists out of the unions. Well, the spark of the unions were those who had a vision of worker control of their own production. They were the socialists, the communists, and the left. So when they were ousted, well, the union movement began to die. And so until the recent influx of organizing, instead of being at 35%, which it was right after the war, it was down to 9%. Big drop. And not particularly militant either. That's beginning to change. And I will talk about that as very hopeful a little later. How did they get away with decimating the union movement, which went from 35% unionized at the end of World War II to about between 7 and 9%. How did they do that? Well, anti-communism was the tool. Joseph McCarthy, the House Un-American Activities Committee, found being on the left un-American. They decided that being a communist or a socialist or a leftist, meant believing in the violent overthrow of the United States. And therefore, people were deported and jailed. Their employers were found and told that they were hiring evil communists and they ought to be fired. Their lives were destroyed. Sometimes, literally, Judy Garland is still famous She was in the Communist Party and was hounded to the point where she killed herself. There was terrible persecution of leftists who were part of the American scene. In fact, their slogan was, communism is the new Americanism. And that is a far cry from the way the January 6th insurrectionists, who actually did want to violently overthrow the government of the time, which was Biden's, and the American electoral process. 
who are not treated severely at all compared to that. They're not being deported or with heavy jail sentences. They're not being persecuted. The way to destroy the left, which was responsible for the New Deal and for the defense of the New Deal, was through anti-communism. Anti-communism, anti-leftism, anti-socialism, making those treason rather than political choice. And so they really basically killed the communist and socialist movements in the United States. They were much less successful in their attempts to do that in Europe because it was communists who ran the resistance against Hitler, and therefore they were quite popular. What they did do was subtly tie Marshall Plan money, which allowed those countries in Europe to recover, they tied that to not allowing communists to teach at the university. The ironic after effect is in countries like Germany and France, people who are leftists or were leftists and taught at the university or wanted to instead went into the labor movement, which in France is such a powerful left labor union with communist and socialist trade unions that four million people have been on strike because Macron wants to raise the pension age from 62 to 64. And the electrical workers and gas workers and workers that operate the transportation system have said no and organized literally millions to oppose that. But by doing that, anti-communism was a great tool. They had used it to crush the socialist movement after World War I, and they deployed the same thing after World War II. There was another thing that was happening, which wasn't very good. There was a discussion to create a constant war machine in the United States. Because it wasn't only the social programs under FDR's leadership, but built by the socialists and communists and leftists of the United States. But it was also the huge interest and increase in war production. And they decided not to convert to a peace economy, but to always have an enemy that justified an enormous expense on defense. So that now we have $840 million, oh, excuse me, $840 billion on war, even though many Americans are down to two meals a day because they're hungry. And one in five children in America is hungry. And they do that through anti-communism and a war on terror, which is so vague that you can keep it going forever, and various wars and invasions, even though they fail, like Vietnam, Iraq, and then and Afghanistan. We've also set up a proxy war in Ukraine, where we are fighting to the last Ukrainian and pouring billions of dollars into arming Ukraine against Russia. It's kind of a proxy war against Russia. 
So America set up the war in Ukraine and are keeping the war machine going with billions for Ukraine. Ukraine shares 1,200 to 1,400 miles of border with Russia, and they did make it clear that there would be a war. However, they hoped that Russia would fold with the sanctions we imposed. And because America has been the king of the world, it didn't occur to us that that wouldn't work, that things wouldn't go our way, that even though we blew up as Seymour Hirsch has um, documented, we blew up the Russia-Germany pipeline so that they couldn't get oil and gas from Russia. Other countries, like India and China, have imported all the Russian oil that used to go to Europe and then sent it out, sent it out at a higher price. And the money that they used wasn't the dollar, It was the ruble or the Chinese renminbi or the Chinese yuan, weakening the dollar and strengthening Russia. That didn't work. Things don't, the United States isn't the king of the world. People can regroup and fight back. The dollar is now so much weaker than what it was compared at the end of World War where it was the dominant currency because the dominant country of the world has its currency used. Now, this is the beginning part of the podcast. In the next podcast, I'll continue to talk about how we can see that the American empire is failing. And in the following one, I'll talk about what we can do about it what we can do to rebuild our country and accept the fact that empires rise and also fall and that we can have a very good life without 800, actually the latest figure is $857 billion for armaments and for a more just and connected nation. So that'll be all for now, but I want to urge you at the end of this program, to go to www.democracyatwork.info and join us. Join our email list. If you can afford it, support us. We really would appreciate it. We also very much appreciate your listening and your sharing with friends so we can get the word out because this word doesn't come in the American media. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.